As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope was of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us and Romans, as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the next, the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of, of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this passage. Uh, thank you that you brought us here today to hear something specific, uh, that this is you divinely orchestrating things, that we would be here this morning uh, on this March beautiful Sunday uh, to hear from you. And so, Lord, would you speak life into our, our souls? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as we are going through the, the book of Acts, uh, we are... We, specifically chose the book of Acts because it's just a very incredibly relevant book for us here today, right? Like, we're, we're part of a network called Acts 29, um, and, and I don't know if you know, but there's only 28 chapters in the, in the book of Acts, and so we, we, we are purposeful in this, that we, we believe we as other churches are a part of the continuing work of the church, that as God 
working and planting churches and moving throughout history. We are part of that. And so um, that we just realized that this isn't just something that happened long ago and we go, oh, neat, <laughs> right? Like we don't just look at scripture and go, interesting. Like this is something that matters to us. This is incredibly relevant. Uh, and because it's a story about churches and new churches uh, that are going out into the world. And so this new church is what birthed Christianity. We talked about that a while ago when we were in Antioch, that, that we got the term Christians out of this, right? And, and Christianity was born into a culture that was very hostile. Like, it was born into a very hostile, very, very unforgiving culture that, that should have just strangled it out. Christianity was born into a culture that was oppressive, that had, that had abusers in power, that, that had many competing worldviews that, that it would have to work against. And this is the soil to which Christianity just seems to flourish, right? That when it's all against it is when it seems to be on the move. And, and we actually know that, for fact, historically, by 350 A.D., that there was 51% of, of, of the Roman Empire would proclaim Christ as Lord. Like 51%. So it, it catches like wildfire. Like it moves out. And, and today we're going to see how God works, I mean, like just incredible stories of liberation. And that, that We're going to see that God is the real chain breaker. He's the real jail breaker. He's the real miracle worker. And so today we're going to look at what we call, or I call, uh, the Philippian flip. Okay? The Philippian flip. And we're going to look at this passage, and I would have you consider uh, that we're going to look at this. Uh, it's going to give us three prison breaks, or three flips, uh, as you were. And the good news is that God is in the business of breaking the rod of the oppressor. Amen? That, and we're going to look at the snake, the quake, and the break. Oh, I had some fun with these turtle <laughs> titles today. <laughs> All right, we're looking at the snake. Uh, now, what we're talking about here is as the gospel is, is spreading to Philippi, we realize that the good news is for everybody, everybody, right? It's not just a certain type of person that, that gets it, but it's for everybody. Because the first person the gospel reaches in Philippi was last week was a woman named Lydia, right? Uh, kind of uh, higher class person that it reaches. But today, in verse 16... The very next person it reaches is, is this slave girl who really is just a child. Like, not just any child, not just any slave girl. The text says that she has a spirit of divination. Well, but that literally means, though, that she has a pythonic spirit. Ew. <laughs> she has a snake-like spirit. And some of you guys might be thinking, oh, she's a parcel tongue. Nope. <laughs> Not a nerd reference the Bible was making 2,000 years ago. <laughs> it's creepier than that, okay? Right? It's a reference to a Greek deity associated with giving oracles from, from the, this python god who had the power to see into the future. And you go, okay, so she's just like a fortune teller. No big deal, because in verse 17, it says, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim the way of the salvation. And so you might be thinking, Great. <laughs> Thank you, random child, I don't know. Keep up the good work. But something's off, because Paul isn't too excited about that, right? 
Instead of Paul rejoicing that this, this, this girl is, is proclaiming, I mean, good doctrine, good theology, he's annoyed by it. And so you might be wondering, why is he annoyed by that? Because it says that she cried out, and that word is actually she's shrieking. She's screaming this. And you're going, okay, that seems odd. That seems like an angry thing to say about a good thing. Um, but here's another thing that, to learn about uh, someone with this type of power. These people were given a name that you and I probably would not use in, in this setting, that they were called ventriloquists. They're called ventriloquists. And when we think of ventriloquists, we think of, you know, someone, you know, moving a puppet's doll or a doll and trying to, like, mouth the words over there. And we're like, that's an odd thing to be happening here. But these were ventriloquists because they were inhabited by demons and the demons would be speaking for them. And so it gets a little creepy here. Like, they, they would be speaking for them and they would be shrieking. And their movements would be erratic and bizarre. And that, and that this little girl would, would have all of a sudden a voice of, a, of an older man. And it would be like deep and dark. And so you're thinking exorcism, right? That's who's following Paul and Silas. I mean, this is, this is like insidious. And you're going, oh gosh, <laughs> stay over there, <laughs> right? You can see why Paul is maybe, maybe pushing back a little bit here. I mean, but these people would make predictions about the future, and, and ultimately they would come true. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making money off of these things um, because they had access to something, and, but they were playing with something that they didn't have any business playing with, right? They, they were having access to these, these powers through the demons that they, they didn't fully understand. And, and I just want to say, as a side note, this isn't a good look for Paul, right? Because Paul doesn't instantly kick out the demon he kind of lets it be. It was following them for days, and Paul finally gets so annoyed. It's when he was annoyed that he cast the demon out. It's not a good look for Paul, but I think here's what's important about this. This is a great look for Christianity in the sense that if you're trying to say that Christianity's made up, that it's a fable, why would they include that in the Scriptures? Why would they have their, the leaders of the movement look so bad? But they kept this in here, even though it makes Paul look bad, because it's something you can trust. They're not trying to make something up here. And so I think it's just important for us to see this. But Paul finally casts out this demon uh, in verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. I mean, I don't know how many annoying exorcisms you've seen. <laughs> it's just like, ah, be God. Like, this may be the first and only of its time. But the fact that, that, that they kept it is just, I think, it just helps us appreciate the, the truth and the, the veracity of this text here. But when Paul does exercise her spirit, what happens is he exercises the girl's owner's income as well, right? That when he exercises the spirit, now the owner's don't have that access to that, that fortune-telling empire they thought they had. I mean, but just think how, how evil that had to have been for these owners. <coughs> this kid is possessed by a demon, like enslaved to its power. So she already has one abuser in her life. Then on top of that, she has owners that are seeing their, their, their slave as really just a, an end for profit 
And so this girl is owned by a, by a demon and then by these, these men who only want to, to use and abuse her. What does that sound like? Like modern day times, what does that sound like? That, that feels like, it sounds like, like a drugged out teenager stuck in the sex trafficking world. That she, she just has these owners that the only, sole purpose they have for, for her is the profit. So she's owned by these men who use and abuse her. She's owned by a demon called, the, called a pythoness. But here's the good news. God has no problems stepping on deep snakes' heads. <laughs> right? Like God has no problem crushing snakes' heads. We look back at, 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 in Genesis when Adam and Eve, and, and, and then God is speaking to them, they, they, they sin, and now God is speaking to both Adam, Eve, but also the serpent. Right? In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity or, or war or hatred or this, this, this strife between you, Satan slash serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And then it introduces a third party. And he, this third party, will crush your head. <laughs> that Jesus will crush the serpent's head and it will strike his heel. And so I just think we need to remind that God has no problem with snakes, right? Like, God can go snake stomping any day he wants. <laughs> and, and, and look how quick it happens. As soon as he commands it, verse 18, and it came out that very hour. It was that easy. It was that easy. And so God flips the script on the evil one, on the snake, and on the oppressors in this world. He breaks the child out of prison and out of her owner's grips, and it doesn't say explicitly in this text, but there are many that believe because another demon didn't come and inhabit her again, that a new owner came and inhabited her. That, that the Holy Spirit comes into her heart and that, that she now joins the church at Philippi and she's part of the church plant team. That'd be a great person for our team, <laughs> right? I love this girl's story because it comes right after Lydia and they couldn't be more different, Right? Remember Lydia, right? She's, she's well-respected, she's wealthy, she's driven, she's brilliant, she owns her own company, but she still needs Jesus. And then, right after her is this little girl who's completely busted up, taken advantage of, abused. I mean, they're total opposites, total opposite financially, but also total opposites spiritually, one who might be considered religious, and one who's not even not religious, who's not even anti-religious, is demon-possessed, <laughs> right? It's that the gospel comes for every single person, that the, the gospel is for all people. And so we see the break of the snake, and now let's look at the quake. I love these titles. I'm so good. Gosh, when you say you're good, it's not good. I'm going to stop talking. All right, because of this action... Because of this action by Paul, the owners, um, you know, they're, they're based, they're, because of their loss of their money and the greed that's, that's now that's being threatened, because of their self-interest, they now make up a story because of their greed, right? They make up a story against Paul. It's not a real story, but because their, their, their loss of profit is gone, because they're greedy, selfish, that, that, that is now being threatened, they make up a story in verse 21 and says, they advocate for customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And so this is something that happens a lot in history, that 
someone has, has, has money on their mind and they come up with another story to, 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 to uh, defame someone, right? And to, to get, justify their reasons for uh, abusing and using them. But they didn't do any of that, right? They just lost their cash cow while, she, while Paul saves this little girl, while liberates this precious child of God. But instantly, somehow, these people were able to rile up a city. They were able to rile up a city to beat them right there. That the crowds beat them. Because they're advocating for customs that are not lawful. And so not just the people get involved, then, then the magistrates get involved, and then they get their rods out, these sticks, and they start beating them. <coughs> and this is one of the three times Paul is probably talking about in 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, 25, he says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Three times. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And you might be thinking, Lord, <laughs> once is enough. Three shipwrecks and a night and a day I was adrift at sea. I mean, just what a life Paul had. That's the life he had. But here's, what's ha- here's what happens, though. After he's beaten, after, after he and Silas are beaten and thrown into jail, now all of this is, remember, this is all completely inappropriate. He hits on that at the very end of our, our chapter here. Paul is a Roman citizen. Like, like, Paul wants to say, you can't just go around beating your own citizens. Like, there should be a, a trial. There should be a process. But alas, he goes thrown into the prison, and then the jailer who's there should have nursed their wounds a bit before taking care of them. The, the, the direction was to take care of them. And the jailer says, great. I want to add to their oppression. I mean, how, imagine how hard your heart has to be to see someone who's, who's most likely bloodied, black and blue eyes, maybe broken ribs, limping into your jail cell and say, what else can we do? Like, how dark do you have to be to say, what else can we do to inflict more pain on them? And so in 24, it says, Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Stocks were this other form of torture that made, you, made your body sit in positions that it was never meant to sit in, right? That would, that would make you cramp up all night so uncomfortable that it was just it was a new form of torture that the prisoner was inflicted on them that was was not an order given to them this was just a self-desire of his own that he's fulfilling and so i think one thing you might want to learn from this is if you ever want god to send an earthquake your way go ahead and put his people in prison like god isn't just going to leave his men in prison you can lock up one of his boys and then he's going to just send an earthquake your way Paul is, going to, is not going to be the patsy of Philippi. God's going to stick up for his people. And that's what happens in verse 26. I mean, this is amazing. And suddenly a great earthquake happens that, that happens very specifically to this prison. Not just in general, oh, it's coincidence. It happens to this prison and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. <laughs> like, whew, the Lord, <laughs> he will break you out of prison no matter what you do. <laughs> We're not going to make that application. <laughs> but I want us to see here that in both cases, this demon-possessed girl that's here in the jail, and the, the, these men in the jail cell, that God cares about his children both spiritually 
and physically. Like, he cares about them both individually and communally. That, that this girl was psychologically bound by demons and socially bound by, their, by her masters. And the gospel liberates her from both. And liberation is this beautiful thing, right? That God isn't going to let his men rot in jail. Not just his men, but then look, God opens up everyone's jail cell. There had to have been guilty and not guilty men in this cell. And he still opens up everyone's jail. <laughs> what? <laughs> what are we learning here? This is before the discussions of the gospel happen. This is before they, 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 they do their outreach program to the prisoners. right? This is before they even present the gospel to the prisoners. God loves them as human beings and breaks them out too. I mean, God's performing a prison break on some rough people? I don't know. They, they seem kind of rough. That seems exactly like something God would do, right? That God goes after the rough people. And so one thing we can learn from this is that we cannot just minister to individual decisions only. That we as a church can't just go, we're only about the individual decision that you, you believe in Jesus. We also need to care about the unjust social systems too. Like, the gospel is disruptive. Like, these things both affect our soul and our body, and we should care about whether people believe. Yes, we, we will care about that. God cares about the individual. That's why he went and got Lydia. But he also cares about the community and about the people around us. We here at Mosaic say that you belong before you believe. That you belong before you believe because we believe that God cares for you because you've been created in his image. You're a child of God. Right? That the, the church is the true church. The church is the true church when we, when we stand up for these things, when we preach the gospel to the person, but also that when we, we actually stand up for social justice. We actually stand up for, for eve, against evils that are happening in our community. And so it, it's got to be deeply communal as well as deeply personal. It affects the way we care and speak to one another. It affects the way we, we love one another. It brings social change and psychological change. And so when the cross comes into your life, you can't just look at the poor the same way. Like, it changes the way you care for people. And so the gospel comes to all mankind. God brings common grace to all mankind. And the true church is the true church when it is, is engaged in social justice and reaching the lost. It's not either or, it's both and. And so we have the flip of this girl from the snake. We have the jail through the quake. But now we get the jailer in this miraculous break. All right, now this is the break that we're excited about. This is a stunning conversion that happens right here. At the end of the earthquake, it's late at night, and the jailer thinks the worst thing is po possible has happened, that, that his prisoners seized their opportunity, which they rightly could have taken, and left and fleed because they were, they were imprisoned unjustly, Right? They could have left. And for this Roman soldier, the only honorable course to take at this point, when you, when you let your prisoners go and have that shame upon you, they're going to kill you anyways, but they're going to lay, lay shame on you, is to take a sword and to, to kill yourself. Right? So he is about to do this. He is about to kill himself. And in verse 28, he's got, he's got the blade drawn. And in verse 28, Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Mm. Why does he do it? 
The man saw their pain and made it worse. This man didn't just follow orders. He hurt them. He was part of the system of abuse and oppression. Why does Paul stop him? Why doesn't Paul just, I mean, he doesn't have to be the one that kills him. He just has to be quiet. He could have just let him do it himself. But he speaks up and stops the man from doing it and says, don't. Your worst fears have not come true. The man saw them the night before singing hymns and praying through their pain that he's putting them in. In spite of that unjust beating that they took, the unmerited torture they inflicted, now they save his life. And not only Paul and Silas, somehow, and the text doesn't tell us how, but somehow the whole prison goes back into jail. What? How did they get the whole prison to say, I'll shackle myself again back into slavery with this seemingly evil jailer? I mean, this isn't right. Like, when faced with undeniable love like this, it changes you. I mean, why would you love me? This man probably has deep shame and was feeling, I'm unlovable, and you did what? And so in verse 30, they brought, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do? Because you've done so much for me. I've done evil to you, and you've repaid evil with good. And this man says, you have something, and I just want it. There's something about you that I want. I don't have it. And this passage begs us to ask the question, who is truly in prison? Who's actually in prison? Was it Paul and Silas or the jailer? Who's actually enslaved? This rough, probably war-torn old Roman soldier who's, who may be struggling with PTSD is given the, the life of a jailer for the rest of his life who's stuck in his anger and, and, and evil to, to inflict pain on people? Or is it Paul and Silas who are praying and singing hymns while they're going through their own suffering? Who actually is enslaved? Ask yourself, who's the real prisoner? And I want to say, do you ever feel like you might be that real prisoner? Do you ever feel like you're the one enslaved? That you've, do you ever feel stuck? I don't want to do this anymore, but I feel like I, I, I have to. Like, you feel like you're enslaved to this addiction. Or maybe you're enslaved to your fears. Ultimately, we are enslaved to sin itself. Like, that's what Scripture tells us, that, that we have a master, and our master is sin, and that we, we are enslaved to that. We have to listen to it until something breaks us out of that prison. And so we, we, we need to see that we are the ones who are stuck in, in, in prison here and our hearts need a, a, a jailbreak. That our hearts need a prison break from our enslavement to addictions, to a fear, but ultimately to sin itself. That we are the ones in jail and we need a prison break. I mean, how can we be saved? Verse 31 tells us, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Let's break that down because if this is how you get saved... We need to understand that. Like, this is pretty big. Believe. What does that mean to just believe? Is that just, like part of that's just like um, saying, yes, certain things are true. I believe uh, that these doctrines. 
Yes, I agree that Jesus is Lord, but even the demons believe. So that can't just be enough. Like that demon girl was spitting amazing theological accurate truth, right? She was saying so many good and true things, but she hated the truth. So you can't just say, I believe. And I'm scared that most of our churches today would say, I believe because I just assent to it, that I just agree it. But I don't really love it. That's got to change. That's part of belief to say, yes, it's true, but also I, 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 want it, I, I, I love that it's true. I love that it's true. Like, how are you to be saved? I have to believe. I have to trust. I have to know that the only hope that I have is Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, the Savior of sinners. And I am the king of sinners. And he dethroned me, right? And I believe that because I, I have a deep love for my Savior here now. That, that because he, he dethroned me and he killed my sin, that changes me to have a deep love for my Savior. I have to affirm not just with my head, but with my heart also. That, that my body and soul, I'm a sinner, and that the only way to get this raggedy self that I call me <laughs> to be loved by Jesus is by grace and grace alone. And when I see that rightly, that Yeshua Savior loves me, it changes me. To see him as, as not just Savior, though, but also Lord is important. That Je- I have to believe that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? Lord implies something different. Lord implies that we have a new king. Uh, we have a new leader. We have a new master. And for someone who just got freed from an abusive situation who was just enslaved why would they ever place themselves under a new master no way like that's that's lunacy that they would say okay i'll serve you now but this new master is not a master who wants to exploit or use or abuse them he is one who loves and cherishes them and this is the radical nature of christianity Like, when God frees them from the prison, they're willing to go back in. Why? Because they want to love this dude. Like, out of love for him, it's the radical upside-down nature of Christianity that it flips our whole understanding of the way life should work. Everyone, we think, should be out for themselves, but we are now out for other people. Why would they do this? Because they have a new master who did this for them. And that master who could have said, I own you and and you shall serve me as subjects. This master doesn't take, he doesn't abuse, this master gives and liberates. This is the new Lord, the Lord Jesus, who isn't asking what's in it for me and how much money can I make off these people. He's asking with true love, how can I serve you? That Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Knowing they're all going to scatter like mice. That he serves his disciples. That he loves and cares for us. I mean, we only hope that this type of love exists in the world. But the good shepherd says that I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for my sheep. That's who we follow. That's who we serve under. I mean, this is a deeper magic that happens here in this text here. 
that we go, something's different going on right here. Not just the earthquakes, but that they would love this prisoner, this, this jailer, that these prisoners would get back in their slavery out of love for this person that is abusing them. And that's why we call him Lord, <laughs> because he genuinely loves us and wants the best for us. And it's that type of love that calls Paul to save this man's life. And it's because of this act, Paul and Silas go back to his house and introduce themselves to his family. And you've got to be wondering if you're Paul and Silas, is this a trick? Come back to my house. <laughs> is he going to murder us? <laughs> but he goes back and that's not what happens. He goes back to their, his house and he invites them to his family. He feeds them and then a revival happens. And they baptize the whole family. Ugh. And this is the beautiful picture of what the gospel could do. He, the jailer washes them later from their stripes, and then he himself gets washed from his sins. This Roman Philippian jailer abdicates his opportunity to nurse and to care and just be a human being to these people. But now the gospel changes him, and with the stripes of the rod across their back, he is now overwhelmed with love, and he washes them with water, and then he himself is washed and baptized as a sign and seal of what God promises to do for us, to wash us clean. No blemish on us. And so the time of the abuser has come to an end. Amen? Christ has claimed victory over the grave, over sin, over death, over all of the abusers in our life. And so the breakout from our slavery of sin has begun. This is the promise of God over you. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Amen.